Liz had shared that song at our Thursday night service before Easter, and as we are going through the Gospel of Mark now, we made our way to the passage where Jesus is in Gethsemane. He's praying, and so thank you for sharing that. I think it captures really the emotion, the struggle that Jesus is facing in our passage this morning. Um, Thank you, Mallory, for sharing the song earlier as well. I think it's appropriate as we celebrate our graduates this morning as we, that we also look at this passage that's focused on the will of God. Because God's will is something that we love to speculate on, love to consider at certain points in our lives. And graduation is one of those times. Right? For our high school graduates, the life questions are really big. What career path are you going to pursue? What education does that require? Where will you seek that education? Where will you apply to work? And that only gets into one specific area of life. It doesn't even touch on all the others. And for college graduates, um, the same questions, just with um, more pressure, probably. I know that was encouraging for you all. But we want to know those answers at those points in our lives, at those moments. When we finish one chapter, we see one one chapter closing. We want to know What's God's plan for my life? What is next? What is his will? And so hopefully you're seeking that. But as we seek God's will, we know that as individuals, um, sometimes as we think about what's God's will for a church, for example, as Baptists, right, we decide that through a congregational vote a lot of times, or at least that's our process. And so we come to business meeting and some vote one way, some vote another way, right? Well, who was right, right? Which person was on the right side of God's will, because we have different interpretations, and we're not going to probably answer all those questions this morning, but God's will is something important for us to think about, and as we look at this passage this morning, um, I just want to say a few things about the will of God before we really dive in to the gospel of Mark this morning, and that's first of all that God's will is perfect. Psalm 1830, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Perfect. He's never in error, right? We might misunderstand. We might be in error in interpreting and understanding God's will, but he is not. God's will is perfect. God's will is also good. Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the will of God? It's perfect. It's always right, but it's also always good. Romans 8 tells us that all things work together for our good if we are called according to his purpose. So God's will is perfect, but it's also what's best for us in the long run. Third, God's will is glorious. Isaiah 55, 9 says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just as God is infinitely more powerful and stronger than us, he's also infinitely more wise and glorious than us in every single way. His will is glorious, but finally God's will is never guaranteed to be easy. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus told us, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus assures us there, not that our lives are going to be free from difficulty if we follow him, right? Which, side note there, if Jesus doesn't promise you your life will be free from difficulty, then I don't know why we believe it when other people 
tell us that our lives are going to be without trouble. But Jesus promises, he assures us here that we will have trouble as we follow him. That following him is a life of daily self-denial, putting aside our will for his will and putting his will first even when his ways may seem foolish to the world in which we live. God's will is never guaranteed to be easy, and we see that in Jesus' life as well. Life of Jesus and his disciples, here in this passage, Mark chapter 14, we see Jesus at this point knowing where his life was headed. He knew his earthly ministry would end with his death on a cross. He knew that's what must happen for our sins to be covered and to be forgiven. His disciples, though, as we see here and we see in the other Gospels, they didn't yet get it. They had questions and concerns. They were confused. They didn't fully comprehend what it meant to follow Jesus, and they didn't fully comprehend what it meant for Jesus to fulfill every Old Testament prophecy. And so they were good with the crown. They were good with Jesus being king, but they weren't ready for the cross. They weren't ready for Jesus to die, even though he'd repeatedly told them that's what was going to happen. And so in our passage today, we see Jesus and his disciples coming face to face with the reality of his death, what's ahead of them. And at the beginning of chapter 14 here, verses 1 and 2, we see the Jewish religious leaders, they're plotting, they're searching for a way to kill Jesus without causing a big public ruckus. And Mark, in a way that we don't always give him credit for here, he moves from that suddenly to this foreshadowing of Jesus's death. He moves to this event that points us forward to the death that Jesus would die for us. And so let's read our passage for this morning in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 3. It says, While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And as we come down to verse 32, same chapter, it says, They went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Father, this morning, we echo those words of our Savior. Not what we want, Lord, but what you want. And our hearts and our lives today, Lord, through your word this morning, we pray that you would make our hearts look more like yours. 
Make our lives look more like Jesus's. In his name we pray. Amen. So what comes into focus over the course of this chapter for us as readers is the will of God for his son. As readers of the Gospel of Mark, if we weren't already familiar with the story of Jesus, then this chapter would make it clear where this story is headed, that Jesus' ministry, his life, is about to come to an end. That is God's glorious, good, perfect, and extremely difficult will for his son. And yet it wasn't what anybody in the story preferred for the week of hit, right? Except for the religious leaders and one opportunistic disciple, everybody in the story wanted Jesus to live at this point. And yet it was exactly what had to happen, what needed to happen for God's plan to unfold. And so before we walk through the ways we see people responding to God's will and his plan in this passage, just a few questions for us to think about in this passage. How do we respond when God's plan differs from our own? Right? How do we respond when God's will conflicts with what we want? How do we respond when doing what God wants is bigger and scarier than what we want to do? So in our passage this morning, we see four options, four possible responses to the will of God, to God's plan for our lives. And the first one we see is exasperation. Jesus and his disciples, they're in Bethany, a couple miles from Jerusalem. And this is during the Passover, and so Jerusalem would have been filled with people. Um, many times it's normal size. Some of you remember back in the days when the Buck Snort Festival was a big deal, and people would come, and there were people all over Sonora, right, for that festival. And so it's like people came, but you didn't want to spend the money to stay in a room here in Sonora, and so you decided you're going to stay a couple miles away in Nolin. And that's what Jesus and his disciples are doing here. Right? They're staying out in Bethany, which is a couple miles from Jerusalem. And he's having dinner at the house of Simon the leper. We presume that that's probably somebody Jesus had healed earlier in his ministry. And he's reclining at the table enjoying a meal with those around the table with him. And in walks this woman that Mark doesn't tell us much about at all. She's just carrying this alabaster flask of very expensive oil. And she walks in, she breaks the flask, and pours the oil on top of Jesus' head. Right? Clearly there is a culture gap here. Because if you walked into someone's house today and just poured a bunch of oil on their head, then they would be upset with you for very different reasons than we see the people being upset here in this story. And nevertheless, though, the people in the story, they're still upset, right? They're indignant, it says. They were exasperated. It says some of them said to themselves, why would she just waste this ointment like that? Why would she do this? Right? I don't know about you, but this is probably maybe the part of this story that I can relate to more than any other. You're just going through the course of your life on a daily basis and you see something happen, you hear about something happen, you see somebody do something or hear them say something, and you can't even verbalize anything at first, and so you just say to yourself, why? Right? What are they thinking? Why would they do that? They were exasperated. They didn't see the whole picture. We don't know what they were thinking fully, and so they responded with confusion. They responded with frustration to this woman who anoints Jesus with oil. And so the disciples, those around the table, 
They reasoned, we go on to find out that they reasoned that this woman's act was wasteful, right? Because she wastes this oil that was worth 300 denarii by just pouring it out over Jesus' head. To put that in perspective, 300 denarii was a year's wages. And so in today's terms, the median household income for Sonora, Kentucky is $50,729. I'm not sure where you even go to buy perfume that costs $50,000. But I think it helps put into perspective here why these people would have been so exasperated and confused by what this woman did in the story because they didn't understand what she was doing and for good reason. When we see, though, that this woman is the one who's rightly responding to Jesus here in a few verses, though, we're going to probably want to identify ourselves with her. But if I'm honest with you, I probably identify most with this group right here, and many of you would have as well. Sometimes when we don't understand why people are doing things or what they're thinking, we become frustrated with them and even angry with them. And then it moves beyond just what we're thinking, and it starts working itself out through our mouths. Right? It says that they went on to scold this woman. Ignorance still doesn't stop most people from sharing their opinion on an issue. Amen? And that's bad enough, but it also doesn't stop us from condemning those that we don't understand. And that's what happens here to this woman. She doesn't just get inquisitive and exasperated looks from these men around the table. She also gets a lecture about how she could have invested her prized possession more wisely. What we see next is that she did this to anoint Jesus' body for burial. In reality, she understood far more than all the others around the table what was going on in the life of Jesus. Her action is pointing us to what Jesus had already predicted many times to the deaf ears of his disciples, and yet she's met with exasperation, with intense annoyance, with frustration, with anger. Second response, though, that we see in the story is her response, and it's a response of worship. The way this woman responded to Jesus annoyed those that were watching it, but Jesus makes it clear that she was the one who responded to him in the right way way, that what she did was nothing less than an extravagant and acceptable act of worship. He interrupted those who were scolding her with a stern correction, leave her alone. And then a question, why are you troubling her? Why do you trouble her? Jesus turns their question back on them. They wanted to know why she would waste this oil, but Jesus wants to know why they're troubling someone who has done something so beautiful for him. The crowd judged her act as wasteful, but Jesus declares it to be beautiful. She's done a beautiful thing to me. And his response makes it clear that the beauty of this woman's act was directly related to the object of her worship, to Jesus. This beautiful thing that she did was an extravagant act of worship for the King Jesus. He gives us a couple reasons why he approves of what she did here, beginning by addressing the objections of those around the table. They were so concerned about wasting all this money, they could have been given to the poor, right? And that's really good of them. It's really pious of them to object in this way. It's amazing how much better we all are, really, at managing the resources of others than we are at managing our own. And that's what Jesus kind of calls out in them here in verse 7. He says, for you always will have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. 
He echoes Deuteronomy 15 there. He acknowledges that poverty is a part of the reality that we live with in a fallen and broken and sinful world. But he doesn't stop there. And a lot of times when I hear this verse quoted, that is where it stops. A lot of people like to use this verse as an excuse for inaction, for not helping those who are less fortunate. Right? Well, you know, Jesus said the poor will always be with us, so what can we really do? But that is an abuse of the Word of God because that is not how Jesus applies this reality. It's not how Deuteronomy applies the reality that the poor will always be with us. The Scriptures use that reality as a call to action. Jesus tells us whenever you want, you can do good for the poor. He's looking at this people who are criticizing this woman. They're wagging their finger at her and saying, you should have helped the poor. And Jesus looks right back at them and says, you know who else should be helping the poor? You. Anytime you want. Whenever you're ready. Worshiping and honoring Jesus means serving others. It means showing mercy to those who are less fortunate. But then Jesus changes directions here. And he reveals the reason behind her act of worship, why it was so significant. Jesus won't always be with them. He's pointing to the fact that this woman did what she could do. She anointed his body for burial. He's once again foretelling his death to his disciples. When given an opportunity to be with Jesus, this woman responds with extravagant worship. A year's wages her probably her most prized possession in the world, just poured out completely to honor Jesus, to prepare for what was coming next. And to underscore the beauty of her action, Jesus says in verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now that's a pretty big prediction. Wherever the gospel is preached, people will hear about what this woman did, that's what Jesus said, and yet here we are, right, 2,000 years later, 6,000 miles from that day, proclaiming the gospel and remembering what one woman did to honor Jesus. She responded to him with worship, holding nothing back. She did what she could, and she did what we are called to do, to pour out everything we have for the glory of his name. Third response we see in the story, though, is one of expedience. Another contrast here, they kind of alternate as we go through from good responses to bad responses. This woman takes extravagant action to prepare Jesus for burial. She saw the promised one of God and acted beautifully in faith, putting Jesus above all. And then comes Judas. Judas who saw the promised one of God. He saw the eternal plan of God as an opportunity for self-promotion, for self-advancement, expedience. See there that Judas was one of the twelve. He went to the chief priest to betray him. They were glad. They promised to give him money. And since he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. The religious leaders, they were already looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. We already knew that. And in Judas, they found just what they were looking for. And Judas, he was looking for a way to parlay his relationship with Jesus into financial gain, and he found what he was looking for as well. It almost seems as if Jesus' statement here about preparing for burial prompted Judas to set his betrayal in motion. Both Judas and the chief priests reacted to Jesus with expedience. They weren't concerned with honoring Jesus as Lord or as Messiah 
and elevating him above all other things. They were concerned with using Jesus to get what they wanted. And as Judas goes to the chief priests, it says, they heard him, they were glad that this Jesus who's been preaching and teaching and drawing crowds, stirring the pot, this threat to their authority as they viewed him, to their power, this Jesus, he was finally within their grasp. Finally, they can get this annoyance behind them, move forward with business as usual. They'd heard Jesus' claims, they'd seen his ministry, they'd seen his power, but it was their own power that they were most concerned about. And so we should see their response to Jesus here, their expedient approach to Jesus as a warning to us that setting any priority ahead of Jesus is an extremely dangerous thing, even if it is done in the name of religion or in the name of tradition. We need to be sure that it's faith in Jesus that's what's driving us in everything that we do. The chief priest's expedience, see, it had a religious pretense to it which may make it a more likely temptation for many of us here in church this morning, but Judas's expedience had no such pretense. He was clearly motivated by one thing, by money, by greed, and the priest could offer that to him. And so he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus, the man who had called him, the man he had heard teach for three years, the man he'd seen perform all kinds of miracles with his own eyes. The chief priest may have been a step or two removed from Jesus personally, but but Judas knew him. He knew who he claimed to be. And knowing all those things, he made a calculated decision to take the money in exchange for Jesus. Again, this is a warning to us as well. Right? In a world where materialism and comfort and wealth and pleasure, power and prestige are elevated above all other things, we need to remember that Jesus is worth far more than any of it. He's not the means to any of those ends. Jesus is the ends. He is the goal of all things. He is the creator and ruler of all things, the only one who's worthy of all praise and honor and glory. It's all all too common to see people who respond to Jesus with expedience, trying to use him to gain something that they want instead of losing ourselves in him. Exasperation, worship, expedience. The final response we see to the will of God in this passage is submission. The best response to God's will is the response of Jesus. That shouldn't surprise us. After we learn of Judas' betrayal, the story moves forward with the Passover, with Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, and then they go out to Gethsemane to pray. Verse 32 says, They went to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He prays fervently. See Jesus here pleading honestly, openly with his Father. But then he faithfully submits to the Father's will, just as he had done every single day of his life. Only this time, the next steps would be far more daunting, more excruciating than anything he'd faced to this point and anything that anybody has faced since. 
He would die on the cross, hung between criminals, paying for no crime of his own, but for your sins and for mine. The judgment for all of it fell upon Jesus on the cross. And he breathed his last breath after hours of torturous pain, and he declares, it is finished. God's will for Jesus' life, the atonement for our sin, the redemption and salvation of sinners like us was accomplished because Jesus willingly submitted himself to die for the sins of the world. Not what I will, but what you will. In Jesus, we see the right response to the will of God. Faced with a plan nobody would want to carry out, Jesus pleads for a way out. He knew there was no other way, and yet he expressed his anguish, his sorrow, even unto death, a death he knew he would eventually die. And so we also submit to God's will for our lives with humble obedience. No matter the cost, wherever he leads, we need to say to the Lord what Jesus said, not what I will, but what you will. And yet we also plead with the same earnestness, the same authenticity with which Jesus prayed, knowing that with God all things are possible, knowing that the one to whom we pray is the one who reigns over all things. And so when we're faced with trials that are too hard for us to handle, we also cry out to God for deliverance. We cry out to him knowing that he is able to deliver us from whatever it is that we face, but also knowing that he might deliver us through that trial instead of from it. We see Jesus responding with submission. Authentic, honest, raw faith that God's way is the best way. I ask you this morning, is that your approach to God's will? It isn't always mine, but it was for Jesus. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, he tells us, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was submitted to the will of God. Four responses we see to Jesus and to God's will in these verses. Two are what appeared to be strong responses, boldly speaking out, boldly taking action, telling it like it is, but their strength proved to be fleeting and failing. It's in the two quiet, humble, meek responses that the power of God is found and that it reverberates to this day. A woman doing what she could, extravagantly worshiping Jesus and our Savior who submitted himself to the Father's will, doing what only he could do so that we can stand forgiven before our God. That is God's will today, that you would hear what Jesus did for you and that you would trust him to save you. Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? And so I'll ask you, do you trust Jesus today?
Have you trusted him as your Lord and Savior in your life? If not, as we sing in a few moments, you're going to be invited to respond to that invitation to trust Jesus, to follow him. If you're already trusting Jesus, then are you submitted to his will? Can you authentically pray? Can you authentically say this morning with Jesus, not what I will, but what you will? Can you say what we're about to sing this morning? Have thine own way, Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we come to this time of response, we pray that you would be honored through our lives, through our singing, through the way that we respond, the commitments that we make to you in this moment, whether they're in the privacy of our own hearts between us and you or whether that needs to be something more public, Lord. We pray that we would be faithful to respond as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.